Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> hey, I'm really excited to be here this morning. I will explain why Nancy is up here in a minute. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing the message or anything, okay? I didn't think it was that funny. Uh, we are going to be taking on the book of James, the next section in the book of James this morning. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And these verses talk about the tongue and the words that come out, of, uh, come out of our mouths. I was thinking about it, and Pastor Jeremy's pretty brave to let a, uh, a lawyer talk about controlling the tongue. Uh, but James tells us like it is. He says straight out that we all struggle with controlling our tongues. We may have different ways to justify the use of unkind words, but saved or unsaved, right, the unkind words come out. A woman once came to John Wesley, a famous English preacher, and said she knew what her talent was, and she said, I think my talent from God is to speak my mind. <laughs> and Wesley said, I don't think God would mind if you buried that talent. <laughs> so I didn't ask Becky to make a slide of all the verses 1 through 12, because I wanted you to simply hear the verses without being distracted by what's on the screen. Sometimes it's nice to just have God's word wash over you, and I think maybe that's one of these moments. So I asked Nance to, uh, to read those verses um, for me because she's a lot prettier than I am, and she's a much better reader. <laughs> so. Okay, James 3. Am I good? Okay. You're great. Okay. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with great strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Thanks, Nan. One of Nancy and my favorite uh, TV shows has always been Columbo. 
many of you will remember this uh, Rumpel detective that solves crimes through creativity and persistence. Um, one unique feature of the show was that the murder was always shown up front, right? So you know who killed the person, and so the tension in the show was not who did it, it was how Columbo would find the bad guy. Um, I'm going to pull a Columbo on you this morning and tell you James's conclusions about the tongue up front. We'll work our way through the scriptures, but I want his conclusions to be rolling around in your head as we do so. Um, James does not blame the two-ounce slab of mucous membrane in our mouth for the deceitful and unattractive thoughts and ideas that are said. He echoes what Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 18, that what comes out of a person's mouth comes from the heart, and this is what defiles a person. In other words, what we say every day is not a product of external circumstances, but internal corruption. It's not because someone is forcing us to say, us, say it. It's not because a situation occurred and we feel compelled to say something. What we say starts in us, and if our words start in us and we say something hurtful, then something about us needs to change. As sobering as it is to hear, James is telling us in this verses that we have no excuses when it comes to the tongue. It's like a bucket going into a well. It will bring up good water or bad water depending upon what is in that well. So as we proceed through the passage, when you see or hear tongue or mouth, please think heart, because the challenge with our tongue is really a heart problem that James is forcing us to confront. One of the requests that I have as we go through these verses when you see or hear tongue or mouth, I also want you to think about letters and notes and texts and emails and voice messages and Facebook posts and gestures and any other methods by which we communicate to those around us. James's message today is not limited to the spoken word and it is not limited to what we do in church. It applies to our families, including our children, Friends, co-workers, other people we know well and people we don't know well. People we agree with and people we don't agree with. Republicans and Democrats. Men and women. Those of the same race or, heritages, or heritage and those not of the same race or heritage as us. And it applies to those we will never meet but who may read something that we post. In, in short, it applies to every aspect of every communication that the Lord allows us to express by whatever means. So let's begin. Let's see. So cool. <laughs> um, before we get to verses 1 and 2, it's worth mentioning that James previously talked about the tongue at the end of chapter 1. Uh, where in verses 26 to 28, he gives three marks of genuine Christianity. Um, a compassionate heart for those in need, an unpolluted testimony in a culture opposed to Jesus, and perhaps most staggeringly, a controlled tongue. Verse 26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. As I said, James is pretty direct. And in chapter 3, he turns his full attention to the tongue and arguably deals with the, 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 the topic more penetratingly than any other writer in Scripture. Verses 1 and 2 say, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, all able also to bridle his whole body. It may seem strange that James starts with a warning to those who teach or want to teach. You know, I appreciate that James includes himself in the warning. We will be judged more strictly, and for we all stumble. James is accepting responsibility for his teaching and is calling on everyone else who undertakes the role to do the same. His warning is tied to the tongue because this is the area where we sin most readily. This responsibility, or being a teacher, is a very public role and one with immense responsibility. The responsibility applies whether you're teaching younger children, more mature believers, um, young adults, or even our own families. As a communicator of God's truth, whether the teacher likes it or not, they influence a great number of people. When teachers incorrectly articulate God's expectations or speak one way and live in another, people are impacted. Think about the news of religious leaders who say one thing and live in contradiction. Their false words and false lives impact many people and create chaos in the church. The fact that a teacher's words have power is the reason why Scripture holds them to a high standard. It is for the protection of the flock that James starts with this direct warning. James makes the point in verse 2 that anyone who never stumbles in what they say is perfect and represents someone who is able to control their own bodies. Yet a bit later in in verse 8 he says that no human being can tame the tongue. I believe the point James is making is not that there are perfect people out there, but that our inability to control the tongue leads to a lack of control in other parts of our lives. One last point. Lest our children's ministry and equipping ministries will hunt me down after this service. And that is James is not trying to convince people not to become teachers. Uh, He is saying don't rush to be a teacher until you are ready because there is a high standard. This should not scare off godly men and women with a spirit-given desire and gift to teach. God will supply all that his children need to accomplish what he wants them to do. Yes, a teacher is responsible to study and take to heart what the scriptures reveal, but this God-given responsibility should be received as a privilege and not something to avoid. Now, as we move into verses 3 through 12, we'll see that James uses a bunch of illustrations. He uses examples from nature and other areas of life, such as horses and boats and fires and animals and bubbling springs and fig trees and olive branches and grapevines. I love illustrations and metaphors. Uh, We just need to remember that illustrations are merely a tool to help clarify and present the instruction that is being given. Um, There are three points. Um that I'd like us to consider as we work our ways through the the verses today. And the first is the tongue is small but powerful. Second, the tongue is dangerous and humanly impossible and, and humanly untamable. And third, the tongue is helpful but inconsistent. Verses three through the first half of verse five say that if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, We guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. 
so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Small but powerful is the first point, and this is how James describes the tongue after working through his first two illustrations. The first being a bit in a horse's mouth. The tiny bit enables a rider to control a much stronger animal. In his second illustration, James refers to a ship's rudder. Tiny compared to the size of the ship, the rudder allows the captain to steer the ship, regardless of strong winds, to the desired location. In both illustrations, the tiny bit and the rudder cause big results. This is a simple point that James is making. Little, me- little mechanisms can cause disproportionate impacts. Likewise, the tongue, which is a small part of the body, has a disproportionate impact in our lives compared to its size. Looking at verse 5, just a second longer, the language about the tongue boasting of great things is interesting. Not only because it alludes to the tongue's power, but it also raises the point that the tongue has the ability to accomplish wonderful things. History is proof that many men and women have used their words to change the course of history and to lift up our spirits. Poets, authors, playwrights, statesmen, politicians, teachers, friends, etc. have all used the power of language in incredible ways. The the examples of this are far too numerous to list. I did, however, want to give you a few quotes that I think believe that that fall into this category. Um, Most of you will recognize the language and the speaker immediately. Um, Never in the field of human conflict have so many owed so much to so few. Winston Churchill, after the Battle of Britain in in, uh, 1940, you know, so many, so much, so few. It's just beautiful. Um, Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Kennedy at his inauguration in 1961. Um, I have a dream. We don't even have to finish out any portion of that speech, right? We know that was by... Uh, Martin Luther King, of course. And these quotes are famous and cool, aren't they? They take us back in, in time, right? Um, however, for most of us, uh, the language that affects us the most is not so lofty or as famous. A few years ago, I started writing down normal types of responses made by people that were just kind of nice and memorable. Uh, I wanted to share two of them with you. Uh, the first was a comment by Bobby Jones one of the most famous golfers of all time. Uh, His playing career ended in 1930, and this anecdote occurred after he stopped playing competitively. Uh, Another well-known golfer came up to him and said how much he respected Mr. Jones and that it was a dream come true to play with him. Bobby Jones's response was very simple. He just said, how nice. Uh, The second is something a father said about his son who is autistic. He said, Ben is quite affected by it, but he is a lovely boy. Um, I love these examples because they're so simple and they're so humble, and they make me smile. The last one kind of makes me cry a little bit. Um, There can be such beauty in words. The writer of Proverbs spoke a lot about and wrote a lot about uh, a speech, obviously. Proverbs 25.11 says that the right word is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Proverbs 16.24 says that pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. The point is that language can be life-giving, 
And there is something quite special about the right word in the right setting. Yet, with the verses that follows, it's clear that James is not focusing here on language that is positive and helpful, but rather the use of language that is negative and harmful. Because while, the capacity, while, while it has the capacity to do good, the, the tongue also has the capacity to turn harmony into chaos, to spoil the reputation of others, to introduce difficulty and disappointment with bitter thoughts and words into a family, to crush someone's spirit with rage, to ruin relationships, and the list goes on. The old, child, the old children saying that sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me is a terrible falsehood, I think. Um, so too is the idea that a vicious representation about someone can be cured by a flippant claim of, gee, no offense intended. Um, I discovered a verse in Proverbs while preparing for today that convicted me quite a bit. Proverbs 26, 18 says, like a madman who throws firebrands and arrows and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. Uh, lastly, before we move to our second point, let's not rationalize or minimize the impact of mean or hurtful language by saying that the recipient just needs to have thicker skin. As with most colloquial sayings, there is some truth to it, but when it, when it comes to the type of language that James is warning us about, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it is a duck, and we have to be careful. So the tongue is, is small but powerful. Our second point, the tongue is dangerous and humanly untamable, is taken almost largely from verse 8, where James says that no human being can tame the tongue. James says this after telling us, about, telling us about the tongue in the second half of verse 5 through 8, which is on the screen. I find it fascinating that the illustrations in verses 3 through 5 about the bit and rudder are examples of what the tongue is like, but the verses in 6 to 8 tell us what the tongue is. There's a difference there. The verses say, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So James says the tongue is the following things. He says, it's a fire that can set a great forest ablaze. Uh, John Bunyan wrote about how this occurs in the life of, of someone when he discusses talkative, one of his characters in his classic book called Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan wrote, he was a saint abroad and a devil at home. Many a man speaks with perfect courtesy to strangers and even preaches love and gentleness, but snaps with impatience and irritability with his own family. It, is not, it, is not, it has not been unknown for a man to speak with piety on Sunday and to curse a group of workmen on Monday. It has not been unknown for a man to speak the most pious sentiments one day and to repeat the most questionable stories the next. 
It has not been unknown for a woman to speak with sweet graciousness at a church meeting and then go outside to murder someone's reputation with a malicious tongue. It seems that the tongue is most frequently set on fire through some form of lie or shading of the truth. In chapter 1, verse 18, James provides us with a launching point for the rest of the book. The verse says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It is inconceivable that the children of God should not bear the family resemblance and be all about the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That if there is one thing that should mark a Christian in a world of deception, it is their truthfulness. Romans 1, 25 to 30 clearly declares that when man exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creature instead of the creator, the result was a laundry list of ugliness that impacted every aspect of their lives. James is simply saying that the tongue is not an isolated part of the body, but because we don't tell ourselves the truth, our entire body is being stained and corrupted. After having played with our thoughts and toyed with our words, we follow with our deeds, placing our whole lives on fire, with, as verse 8 says, a fire whose source is hell. I mentioned a minute ago about the danger of lies and shading the truth. I don't have much time to go into shading the truth But I do feel one example may be helpful, even though most of you may have an idea of what I'm talking about. My example, which did not happen often, but to which I was susceptible, was when I would have a client call my office and ask about the status of their case. Oftentimes, I would see the call coming in through the phone system, and I would uh, quickly reach over and pick up their file, even though I hadn't looked at it for weeks. And then in response to the the, the client's question about the case, right, I said, well, I'm looking at your file right now. Technically true, right, but shading the truth. Um, I believe shading the truth happens so often in our lives that we can easily become immune to it. But make no mistake about it. Shading the truth is part of the fire that James is warning us about. James next says the the, the, uh, the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. You know, there aren't many sins that don't involve talking. Uh, Said another way, every sort of evil in the world finds an ally in an uncontrolled tongue. No matter what the evil is, an uncontrolled tongue is able to move that evil forward by causing it, reporting it, repeating it, justifying it, reinforcing it, or denying it. Each such action spreads the unrighteousness further and further. It's a worldwide issue, right? Right? As noted earlier, James says in verse 8, the tongue is untamable. He makes the point by stating in verse 7 that while man has tamed all the animals, no human being can tame the tongue. In other words, that while we have dominion over the animals, we don't have dominion over our homes and over our heart. It's perplexing that the very part of the body that God gave us through which we can communicate and praise God is the means by which we deceive and hurt others and dishonor God. James finally says, the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Washington Carver, an American essayist, short story writer, biographer, historian, and statesman in the early 19th century, once wrote that no other tool except the tongue gets sharper with consistent use. The tongue never seems to get dull or tire. 
It represents a restless evil, much like Satan in Job's chapter 1 in 1 Peter 5, 8, where Satan is constantly roaming and prowling to and for across the earth. The tongue, the, the uncontrolled tongue is insatiable, spewing its poison with every word, which is one of the difficulties that we have in trying to control it. James' words are direct, aren't they? But I believe James's message, as one of my favorite authors, Helmut Thielake, stated, is only the sternness of a physician who tells us only a radical operation will help you. If I do not cut deeply enough in the flesh now, I shall only be doing a superficial and temporary patch job. And in a few weeks, the disease will break out again in fresh growths. The sooner we recognize the tongue is necessary but dangerous, the sooner we can choose to more fully trust the great physician to help us. So the tongue is dangerous and untamable. Let us pause for, for a second and look at the issue of the tongue from the perspective of a growing disease in the United States. I'm referring to the issue of civility, or should I say lack of civility. Uh, trust me, I'm not going to approach this from a political perspective because the issue has permeated, permeated into our culture way beyond just Sacramento and Washington, D.C. What I want to spend a couple minutes discussing is just how pervasive and powerful mean, rude, and negative words are. James says the tongue can, can infect our whole body, our lives, and the lives of those around us. The following findings from four scientific studies clearly shows that he is right. There are more studies, but I just wanted to give you a taste. You probably won't be surprised by the findings except perhaps for the last one. First, de-energizing colleagues have been proven to have seven times more impact than one energized colleague. In social media, it has been established that anger tra travels much faster than joy. Third, if you include profanity in a comment, someone is twice as likely to swear in reply. And fourth, and this is the most telling one to me, an experiment was designed to have an actress play a role and scold neonatal intensive care, NICU, physicians and nurses before a simulated procedure. Everyone in the, in the experiment went on the defensive. They would not offer an opinion or help each other. These teams were 40% less effective in diagnosis and treatment than the control teams that were not scolded. Bottom line is that rudeness can be more dangerous to an infant in a NICU than a chronically sleep-deprived physician or receipt of the wrong medication. Other studies have also shown the reverse is equally true. Receiving generosity makes you likely to donate. If others cooperate, so do we. A leader's confidence makes teammates confident and successful, and civil comments elicit civil responses. And we see these exchanges as less biased, more informative, and, and more trustworthy. While these studies are consistent with the idea that civility is an antidote to incivility, Followers, followers of Jesus Christ must never forget that civility and truthfulness are only the ground floor for us. Our, great, our higher goal, which the world will never understand, is to love our neighbors, love our enemies. There are numerous verses that describe how we should uh, communicate with others. Um, here are a few of those that you can read later. Uh, Colossians 4.6, 1 Peter 3.15, 2 
Titus 3.2, and 2 Timothy 2.24-25. One of Billy Graham's favorite authors was Philip Yancey. Yancey incorporates the essence of these four verses when he summarized the Christian's responsibility as follows. He said, the issue is not whether I agree or disagree. Let me start over. The issue is not whether I agree with someone with whom I profoundly disagree. Christians are called to use the weapon of grace, which means treating even our opponents with love and respect. Our third point is that the tongue is helpful but inconsistent. Psalm 51.15 says that, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. But unfortunately, unfortunately, James tells us in verses 9 to 12 that praising God is not all that our lips are declaring. The verses say, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour, for, pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a pond, can a, can a salt pond yield fresh water. So we praise God and curse those around us. Obviously, John, uh, James is not limiting our treatment of others just to profanity, but includes any unkind words that we may use. The glaring inconsistency is that we are praising God and despising his creation with the same mouth. When we, dis- when we denigrate and curse people made in God's image, then we are really cursing God. In a moment of masterful understatement, James proceeds in verse 10 to say, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. I love James's language. He doesn't bother to go into great detail. He simply views this, this inconsistency as nonsensical and worthy only of a common sense rebuke that it ought not to be. However, this rebuke says quite a bit about the untamable nature of the tongue. Historically, when a society starts to putrefy and the established morals start to decline, that society starts to enact laws to cover what ought not to be. The laws are needed because the citizens can no longer comply with basic moral standards. Two quick examples. First one is for Scott. Um, When I was writing BART years ago, there was seating by the doors as you went in, and there was a sign overhead that said um, that it was reserved for the, the elderly and the disabled. At the bottom of the sign, in relatively small print, It also stated that by federal law, you must stand up for the elderly and disabled. My question is, why do we need a federal law, right? It is because the what ought to be is becoming rarer and rarer. My other example that I've read is about cities adopting laws and ordinances prohibiting parents from yelling obscenities at umpires from the stands at Little League baseball games, (laughs) right? Do we really need laws and ordinances like that? As James says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. James finishes his illustrations with fresh and salt water springs, fig trees, olive branches, and grapevines. His point is one that Jesus made many times, that like produces like. 
he is confronting the reader and us with the idea that our tongue, that what our tongue says is more than matched by what our heart thinks. The relationship between the tongue and the heart is real and consistent with Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Quick story. A young boy is sitting next to his, his, uh, his dad at breakfast when his dad complains about the breakfast. And the young boy is sitting next to his dad at church when his dad complains about where the ushers sat them and about the songs that were sung and about the length of the sermon's message, or the pastor's message. Um, he's also sitting next to his dad later that day at home when his dad leads the family in a prayer, thanking God for the meal that they were about to receive. So when his dad finished the prayer, the young boy said, Dad, did God hear you today in church when you were complaining? And uh, the, the dad said, well, I'm afraid so. And then the younger, young boy followed up with, Dad, did, did God uh, hear, you, hear you when you were praying right now? And the father said, yes, you know, he did. And then the young boy asked, Dad, which one did God believe? Uh, Perhaps the better question is, which one represents our heart? The same fountain ought not to produce salt water and fresh water. So the tongue is helpful but inconsistent. Before I close, I'd like to share with you uh, a very simple but helpful guideline that I challenge everyone to consider adopting. Uh, I offer these practical steps not in the spirit of self-help, but with the understanding that only by submitting these steps to God's oversight and care will they do any good. Do they cover every possible situation? Of course not, but they give a pretty good framework. Uh, they represent four gates that you let your words pass through before you utter them. Each gate leads to the next. First, is what I'm, is what I'm about to say true? For us to know it is true, if it is about someone else, it means we need to check the facts before saying it. Does it mean that we can never express opinions? No. But, it need, but we need to be careful in mixing and matching facts and opinions so we don't shade the truth. Second is a confidential. Has someone said they'd like me not to share it? You may be surprised that confidentiality is one of the gates. But Chuck Swindoll once said that in all his years of church life, it may be easier to find purity than someone who is completely confidential. Third, is it necessary? Does this space of silence need what I'm about to say? Is what I'm about to say important enough to say? And fourth, is it edifying or kind? Will it build up or tear down? Is this going to enhance or bring sadness? Uh, Ephesians 4.29 kind of encapsulates each of these four gates. I copied the verse from the Amplified Bible, George, um, and put it on our computer next to our phone as a reminder. Do not let unwholesome, foul, profane, worthless, vulgar words ever come out of your mouth, but only such speech as is good for building up others, according to the need and the occasion, so that it will be a blessing to those who hear you speak. This four-gate structure works equally well with pleasant conversations and hard conversations where we may need to challenge someone or correct someone or disagree with someone. 
It works because it assists us in double-checking our motives and our approach to the communication. James never says that we must passively accept harsh words or avoid hard situations. Rather, Scripture calls us to respond to those situations with gentleness, truthfulness, and convictional kindness. The structure also works well for apologies. Proverbs 14.9 says that fools make fun of guilt, but the godly seek it and... But the godly, the godly acknowledge... Let me just read it again. It's too good of a verse to mess up. Um, so Proverbs 14.9, fools make fun of guilt, but the godly acknowledge it and seek reconciliation. If you sense that you said something that hurt or offended someone, then don't wait to apologize and ask for forgiveness. The use of the tongue in this way is life-giving. So our time is largely gone. And what are we going to do? So, shall we pull up our socks and get about the, the busyness of working hard to tame our own tongues? Well, that's useless, right? James tells us that no human being can tame the tongue. I guess one thing we can do in practical terms, right, is just to kind of get up out of the sanctuary and walk out without talking to anybody. Kind of a... But that's crazy too, right? Um, because James, because it was a complete waste of time because James is not pressing us for silence. He is exhorting us for control. There's a big difference there, isn't there? What we need to do is to go back to Psalm 51.10 and say, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. We need to ask the Lord to change and clean our hearts, knowing that our tongues will follow. And this is just what God is committed to doing in the life of his children. He has a plan for our lives to make us more and more like Jesus, including a changed heart. It is the existence of this plan that turns James' words from being hopeless into hopeful. It is the existence of this plan that can give us hope and purpose in every area of our life, not just speech. As Father John Egan once spoke, once said, Yes, there is a story in me, and it is going somewhere. The potter is forging his piece of pottery out of my poor clay. The master tapestry maker is weaving his own tapestry out of the stuff of my life. The good shepherd is leading me on a journey to rich, gracious, green pastures. Romans 8.29 tells us that the eternal purpose of God is to make us like Jesus. This was God's plan from the beginning of time as it relates to all who accept Jesus. 2 Corinthians Corinthians 3.18 tells us we are being transformed into his likeness, present tense. 1 John 3.2 and 3 tells us we know that when we see him, we shall be like him. The wonderful news of the gospel is that the only hope we have is the only hope that is offered, which is being born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And although we are not all that we need to be, in Jesus, praise God, we are some distance from what we once were. And it is Christ to whom we must look in order to achieve his purpose for our lives. Let me close this in prayer. 
Um, I wrote this out so you guys can bow your heads. I'm going to keep my eyes open. Father, forgive us when we have praised you on Sundays and cursed you others during the week. Renew us through the power of the Holy Spirit since we cannot tame our tongues or clean up our own hearts. We place ourselves at your disposal. Enable us, Father, to have control, to think before we speak and to pause long enough to evaluate before we even give an opinion, especially as it relates to another person. Thank you for your plan to make us more and more like Jesus. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.